Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Clark. You are listening to a message from St. John's Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praises in the name of Jesus. Amen. A little question to start our message off today, maybe a little trivia you could call it. What do Edgar Allan Poe, Johann Sebastian Bach, and Vincent van Gogh all have in common? And this is a pretty difficult question. I'll be super impressed if you can think of the answer that I am thinking of for this specific question. The answer is simply this. They all died before they were truly famous. In fact, I would take it a step further and say they all died thinking they hadn't accomplished much with their lives at all, which is crazy considering who these men are, the accomplishments they had, and the lives that they changed through their work. Bach, maybe the most famous classical composer of all time. And yet, and yet when he dies at the age of 65, He goes to his grave saying things like, no one's going to listen to my old-fashioned music in the future, and that people are just going to remember me as a decent church organist. If only he could see today where his music is beloved. In fact, he is the most listened to person, classical composer on the music service Spotify. His music would net him hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties alone today. People absolutely still listen to his old-fashioned music. And then there's Edgar Allan Poe, maybe the most famous American poet of all time. And yet he dies depressed, thinking his life was totally wasted. And you could see why he might think that, why he might feel like a failure. His most famous work, The Raven, he sold that for just $9. Even at his wealthiest, he struggled to even put food on the table to feed himself, if only he could see today, where he is one of the most beloved American poets of all time, where his work is considered so good that works like The Raven are required readings at high schools across America. At least it was at Vicksburg High School where I went. And then there's Vincent Van Gogh, maybe the best example of this. This guy thought he had accomplished so little in his life that he actually takes his own life, a very sad story. And you could see why perhaps he felt like a failure in his lifetime. He only sold one painting. If only he could see today where his works like The Starry Night, valued at $300 million, some say it might go for a billion dollars if it were auctioned off today. His self-portrait right there, handsome fellow, he painted it himself. $72 million is what it sold for 26 years ago in 1998. No, in Bach, Van Gogh, and Poe, we have three men here who accomplished a lot, but they never saw the lives their work changed, and they felt like failures as they went to the grave. If you look at our lessons today, we could add a fourth person to that group and make it a quartet because Elijah the prophet, this is someone who accomplishes a whole lot, and yet he leaves this world depressed, thinking his life was absolutely meaningless. And we're going to talk about that life and his depression today. And you might say, well, Pastor Ryan, that's a bit of a depressing sermon topic if you ask me. Fair enough. But I think a lot of us, too, struggle with feelings of failure at times. And there's a lot of lessons we can learn from the life of Elijah when it comes to how we should deal with it 
when we feel like failures. And so we're going to look at that life today. In fact, our question of the day is what can we learn from his life that helps us deal better when we feel like failures? We're going to look at his resume, all the things he accomplished, and see what we can learn regarding that question of the day. Now, in Scripture, his life starts in 1 Kings 17. We don't get a lot of background on who he was, but we get a whole lot of background on how things are going in Israel at the time that he is a prophet. And let's just say things are not going well at all. Have you ever used the saying or heard someone use the saying, that guy is the worst? That guy is the worst. Usually, when people use that saying, they don't actually mean that person is the worst human being in the world. It's usually about maybe an athlete or an entertainer they don't happen to care for, and they say, that guy is the worst. Well, if we were talking about King Ahab, the guy who is king of Israel at the time that Elijah is doing his ministry, we could say that guy is the worst, and it's actually true, not because I say it, but because God's word says it. In 1 Kings 16, it says Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Certainly the most evil king of all time, maybe the most evil person of all time, God's word says. That guy is the worst. Look at his evil resume here. This is a guy who considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, it says in 1 Kings 16. And if you know who Jeroboam, son of Nebat, is, you know that that is no trivial slight against Ahab here. Four chapters earlier, Jeroboam is the guy who did this. It said he made two golden calves, and he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And they worshiped those golden calves. Ahab would look at something like this and say, that's child's play. I can top that in my sleep. And he actually does, as you continue to look at his resume here. This is the guy who married the very evil Queen Jezebel. And with her, all kinds of idolatry is popularized throughout Israel. They make Baal worship popular. They make Asherah worship popular. In fact, they build a huge temple to the false god Baal. This is a guy at Ahab who kills all the prophets that God sends his way, essentially, and many other believers. This is a guy who entirely ignores God's counsel sent his way through prophets like Obadiah and Elijah. And eventually, God looks down at King Ahab and essentially says, this guy is the worst and I am going to take care of him. I'm going to humble him. I'm going to humiliate him. And he does that through the work of the prophet Elijah. One of the main ways he does this is in this really cool story, Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal. If you've never heard this story before, you're about to, it's awesome. It starts in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah says directly to Ahab, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. I will prepare the other bull. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Essentially a little competition here, right? Elijah says to Ahab and all those prophets of Baal, you can choose your bull and we're going to put a little pile of wood under there, and I'll get the other bull, and we're both going to call out to our gods, and whoever answers by fire, that is proof positive that their God truly is God. And if you went to Sunday school regularly growing up, you know what happens next. 
The prophets of Baal, they call in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. It says they danced around that sacrifice. They begged, they pleaded, they yelled, they shouted. But nothing happens, and of course, nothing happens. There's no such thing as Baal. And this all causes the prophet Elijah to unleash some pretty awesome trash talk as far as I am concerned on these prophets of Baal. It says that at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. You know, when we really dig down into the biblical text, we can find some truly important details at times. And if we were to truly dig down into this biblical text, we find a detail. I don't know how important it is, but I do think it's pretty funny. If we look at these words, perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. That's actually a Hebrew saying. If it's translated into the original Hebrew, perhaps he is engaged in business. Perhaps he is engaged in business was a euphemism at the time for perhaps he is going to the bathroom. And so what Elijah essentially says here is this. Your God, he'd help you out, but he's a little too busy on the can right now taking his morning constitution off. And then after that awesome trash talk, very humiliating, right? He humiliates the prophets of Baal and Ahab further. He has them pour a bunch of water all over his sacrifice. And then he calls out to God. God, of course, lights it on fire. What? An awesome scene. What a great thing to have on your resume there. In Elijah the prophet, we have someone who stands up to the evil King Ahab, humiliates him, and all those prophets of Baal. And his resume, it's just getting started. We can see another cool thing that he does here with the widow of Zarephath that happens in 1 Kings 17. It says, Elijah went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and asked, would you bring me a little water and a piece of bread? He's thirsty, he's famished. And she answers, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. All right. So if you understand how things are going in Israel at that time, it's a bit of a famine going on in the country. And this woman, she's a widow. And in this time and place, a widow putting food on the table would have been very difficult in normal times, let alone in a time of famine. And so in this woman, we have someone dealing with famine, devastation, and she is entirely depressed. She has given up, right? She says, I'm going to make one more meal and that's it. We're going to be done after that. Well, God sends the prophet Elijah into this woman's life. And through Elijah, through the power of God, this incredible loaves and fishes style miracle happens. Through Elijah, that jug, it never runs out of oil. That jar, it never runs out of flour. It's multiplied time and time again with that little bit that she brought to the table. And through that, this family is fed for months. And Elijah was actually just getting started with this particular family. It says a few months after all that, that widow's son, he dies. And this obviously upsets the widow. She starts yelling at Elijah. She says, I'm worse off than when you found me, 
man of God. But once again, God works through Elijah to do this incredible miracle. And it says that that son was raised from the dead. So in Elijah, this resume, it's starting to pile up, right? Look at these accomplishments here. He humiliates Ahab and the prophets of Baal. He miraculously feeds this widow and her son. And then he, oh yeah, raises that son from the dead. And he's not done yet. In Elijah, we also have this guy who trained up maybe the most incredible replacement you could think of. And that is Elisha with an S. And Elisha, he accomplishes some pretty incredible things in his own right. In Elisha, we have someone who parts the Jordan River like Moses parted the Red Sea. We have someone who helps Israel's army win a couple major battles, one through miraculously providing water, another through striking the entire enemy army blind. We have someone who miraculously provides oil for a widow's son or for a widow, and then she goes and sells that oil to get her sons out of slavery. An incredible story. We have someone who raises a child back to life from the dead, just like his mentor did. He has his own loaves and fishes style miracle when he feeds a hundred. Maybe you know the story of how Elisha healed Naaman, this enemy general of leprosy. He makes an axe head float, a really cool story if you have time to read 2 Kings 6 today. He accomplishes a lot in his own right, and Elijah is the guy who trained him. What a cool thing to have on your resume. I think, honestly, if I accomplished 10% of this, I'd probably feel pretty good about myself. But that's not how Elijah feels at all. Like I said, he still feels like a total failure. In fact, the last thing we see him doing before he's taken away in that whirlwind scene is hightailing out of the promised land because he feels unworthy of even being in God's presence. The last thing he does is cross over that Jordan River and leave the promised land. And if you know the story well, you know that he leaves this world feeling like his life was worthless despite all of those accomplishments. And the question we were going to answer today is simply, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from the life of Elijah that helps us deal better when we feel like failures? And there are many, many lessons we could learn here. But there are two major points I want to talk about as we come near the end of this message. The first thing we can learn is this. We are not the best judges of what we have accomplished in life. Not at all. Elijah is such a good example of that. He accomplished so much, right? Stands up to Ahab, raises a widow's son from the dead. And yet after all of that, in 1 Kings 19, he says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He trains up a guy like Elijah, and yet he still feels unworthy of even being near God. He's hightailing it out of the promised land. He is not the best judge of what he has accomplished, is he? And I think the reason that is, is because he just doesn't see the fruit of his labors. And I think we can experience the same thing as well. Elijah just doesn't see that fruit. God tells him, hey, Elijah, 7,000 in Israel have remained faithful to me in part because of your work with the prophets of Baal. And yet Elijah just isn't willing to listen to that. He doesn't see it with his own eyes. And he never sees what Elisha does. He's gone long 
before Elisha does all of these things. And Elisha does some incredible things, doesn't he? He truly never sees the fruit of his labor. And sometimes we don't either. And I think oftentimes that's why we are such bad judges of what we have accomplished in life. Maybe for you, you feel like God has left you some kind of task. Maybe it's telling a neighbor, a family member, a friend about Jesus. And you've been telling him and telling him and telling him and you're just not seeing any fruit. You feel like a failure. If that is you, don't give up. Don't you dare give up, right? Continue to speak into their lives. Remember the promises that Jesus makes. In Jesus, we say, he says, whoever remains in me and I in him, they will bear much fruit, right? As we remain close to Jesus, there is fruit bared through our lives. And so what you should do in that situation is you should go to God each and every day and say, God, what would you have me say to that person? What would you have me do for that person? Draw near to him and there will be fruit. Now, he doesn't promise that you get to see that fruit. He just promises that there will be fruit. So lesson one we can learn from Elijah's life, we're not the best judges of what we have accomplished in life. And lesson number two, and if I had a very important point of the day, it would be this right here. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how we feel about our accomplishments, but how God feels about us and what he accomplished for us. A little trivia as we end today's message. What did God accomplish for you that shows his feelings of love for you? And honestly, I'd be a little upset if you don't get this one right because we talk about it each and every week. The answer is simply this, the cross. The cross shows us some pretty incredible things. It shows us that God loves us despite our failures, that God loves us despite our feelings of unworthiness. On the cross, Jesus accomplishes with his perfect life and death the forgiveness of your sins and his accomplishments don't stop there. Through the cross, we overcome our unworthiness through receiving Christ's worthiness into our lives. We overcome our perceived unworthiness and our actual unworthiness through receiving Christ's worthiness. And we see this actually play out in the life of Elijah. In the Old Testament, the last thing we see of Elijah, him hightailing out of the promised land, feeling unworthy of even being near God. But that's not the end of his story, not at all, right? Fast forward to that gospel lesson you heard today. The transfiguration. Who's there? Elijah, of course. And where is he? He is in the middle of the promised land, standing right next to Jesus. Why? Well, he's overcome his feelings of unworthiness and his actual unworthiness through his belief in the promise of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And he has received Jesus' worthiness into his life. Incredible. And these same promises, these same things we see in the life of Elijah, they apply to us too. And so this week, I'm going to be praying for a couple of simple things for you. First, I'm going to pray that whatever task you have that God has given you, that you don't give up, that you keep on going at it, remembering that maybe you are not seeing all the fruit. Draw near him as he draws near you. God will produce fruit through your life. Keep on working at it, even if you feel like a failure. And second, I'm going to be praying that you realize that ultimately it doesn't matter how 
you feel about your accomplishments. You might feel great about it. You might feel indifferent or you might feel like a total failure. And honestly, it doesn't matter. What matters is how God feels about you and what he accomplished for you. And what he accomplished for you is the forgiveness of your sins and the giving of his worthiness into your life, accomplishing eternal life. May you receive Jesus' worthiness right now and forevermore in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. John's Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. If you would like more information about St. John's and any of our ministries to our community and beyond, you can go to our website, www.stjohnsbuffalo.org. Thank you and God bless you.